Well, good morning again and welcome. I have all sorts of announcements for you this morning. And the first one is the partnership class happening this coming Saturday from 9 o'clock until 1 o'clock here at the church. And that is a chance for you to kind of pull back the curtain a little bit and see what makes the church work. How do we partner together to do all that we're hoping to do in the world, in our community? Um, Jason teaches the class, and it's just really cool. So you are invited to come to that. If you call Brookview your church home and you have not done that before, please come. We'd love to have you RSVP by Tuesday because we have some supplies that we need to prepare and get ready to go for that. And the way that you would RSVP is by filling out the Connect card that is on your seat there. Or if you're watching online this morning, you can go to brookviewchurch.com and click on the Contact Us and fill out the Connect card there. And then the next day after that, for oh no, Tuesday. Okay, I'm out of order. This is weird. Back yourselves up. Um, Tuesday this week is our Cedar Way and our Vision House delivery. And we have a couple of items that are still needed there. Um, but more than anything, if that's something that you're interested in seeing those digital signups, um, we send those out once a month, and you can go online and see what needs there are. And the way that you sign up for that list is by texting the word HELPING to the Brookview number, and that will automatically push that to you. The other thing that you could do is mark your Connect card, and we will store your email address in our little database, and we will get that to you. Um, we do it like... We send it out the week before. Sometimes it's like Thursday before the Tuesday um, so that you have the weekend to shop. If I send it too early, we get rotten bananas. That's like inevitable. We just can't stop ourselves from buying those bananas too early. So, um, so that's why we hold off on that. So if you're someone that just is like, no, I could restrain myself from buying those bananas and I'd like to shop earlier, just let me know. I probably could make that happen for you. <laughs> Why am I talking about that? That's so rude. Oh, I'm having a moment. It's true, but not everything that's true needs to be said. <laughs> all right. But really, thank you for all that you do. This month at Cedar Way, the PTA there is going to be providing pies and some um, Thanksgiving extras as well. And so it's nice that we show up and bring what we say we're going to bring so that they can focus on those extra um, blessings and putting those in, in cars and Vision House as well. So we have reached out to Vision House, um, and we will at Cedar Way to find out what does Christmas look like for you guys and how can we support you. So that will be coming um, in the month of December as well. And then the brunch. So really leap, leap, leap. Um, Sunday the 19th, so the next time that we're gathered together here, we get to sit around tables together, and um, our focus will be talking about gratitude and just things that we're thankful for in our lives, and um, it's just a way to get around the table and meet some new people, and it's led and hosted by someone, so you don't have to figure out how to make weird conversation. They will ask you questions, and you can simply answer them, so that's kind of nice. If you're like me, it's like the lunchroom at school. You're like, number one, where am I going to sit? Don't worry, you're going to check in, and they're going to tell you where to sit. And then the other thing is like, what will I say? Don't worry, they're going to help you with that too. So are you anyone like me like that? You're like, oh, I don't want to sit around a table with strangers and make small talk. 
some of you, Haley, you're like, yes, more. Can we do that every Sunday? People, people, people. <laughs> All right. We do have a few needs left for that. Um, when I looked, like, as of yesterday afternoon, I think we still needed, like, four more casseroles, three or four more casseroles um, to put on those tables. And we're also needing bananas. <laughs> Safe to buy them this week. Um, and some oranges and some yogurt. Um, and so if, if you might be able to help with that, would you text the word brunch to the Brickview number? And that will give you that digital sign up. Um, but you can also mark your Connect card. And then I can push that to you when I am back in the office on Tuesday. Um, Oh, yeah, yeah, that. But before we do that, um, I want you to know if you're a parent, we do not feed your kids as part of Kids Church. They do their regular Kids Church morning. We do have a snack for them in the morning, but it is not going to be a breakfast casserole like you're eating. So make sure you feed your kids because we don't want them grumpy because we'll text you. <laughs> Okay, what's behind me right here is after church um, today, we are hoping that anyone who might be available or willing to give us some muscle might be able to help us set up this space. So we have to haul tables from downstairs and bring them up here and then put chairs around all of them. And so we're going to throw this map up at the end of church today. And if you're able to help and just lend a hand, many hands make light work. That's what my dad always said. <laughs> Officially old. All right. I already talked about the Connect card and then also the online. So that's it, you guys. Um, yeah. Hi, Chris's family. Hi. Welcome. That's weird. Okay, bye. Guys, Jennifer, do you would just she look especially nice today? It's like the white the white top there is it's kind of angelic. I just feel like the angels are singing to me. That's my wife, for those of you that don't know. I... So through the fall, uh, we've been thinking about encountering God more deeply. And one of the themes that we've been considering is our ability to see. If, if God is truly present every moment, how do we experience him? Like Tim Mackey being surrounded by the huckleberries, but unaware, it seems we can be surrounded by God's presence and activity, yet unaware. And so today I want us to think about a very simple question. Is there a practice that can help us heighten our awareness? So in Luke 24, we, we see two men literally walking and talking with God and totally unaware. So here's the background. Jesus has just been crucified. 
his followers are, are devastated. They're in shock. They had seen move, uh, God moving in undeniable ways. They, they, they'd seen miracles, and they knew what it all meant. In Jesus, the Messiah had arrived, the one to restore Israel. Like Moses, Jesus' leadership was infused with supernatural power. Like he was feeding the crowds with bread from heaven. Had the people of Israel ever seen that before? He wasn't just parting the seas. He was walking on the water. He was healing diseases, even raising the dead. God's activity had not been seen like this since Moses. And in that day, their ancestors were enslaved to Pharaoh. And God sent a prophet to liberate, to liberate them from Egypt. In their own day now, they're oppressed by Caesar and they're crying out. And clearly, God has sent Jesus to deliver them from who? Caesar, Rome, right? And they knew. They knew that this was going to happen. It was only a matter of time. There would be an uprising. There would be supernatural stuff going on. Then there would be freedom, liberation, and then there would be the kingdom. The Romans would be defeated through God's power. Israel would be reestablished. Jesus would be a king like King David who loved God and loved justice. And prosperity and peace would come flowing to them like Ezekiel's vision of the river. But nothing that they expected came to pass. Jesus was crucified by Caesar's puppet governor, Pontius Pilate. And when that happened, all of their hopes and dreams died with him. So that's where we're picking this up in Luke 24. Okay, two disciples, not from the 12, but two from like the broader group of disciples that followed Jesus. They're walking away from Jerusalem. They're processing all that's happened, all of their confusion. And uh, I'm just going to read you the whole story. This is, this is awesome. This is Luke 24, starting with verse 13. It says, Now that same day, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. They were talking with each other about everything that had happened. As they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked along with them, but they were kept from recognizing him. He asked them, what are you discussing together as you walk along? They stood, they stood still, their faces downcast. One of them, named Cleopas, asked him, are you the only one visiting Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened here in these days? What things, he said. About Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. And what is more, it is the third day since all this took place. In addition, some of our women amazed us. They went to the tomb early this morning but didn't find his body. They came and told us that they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Then some of our companions went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but they did not see Jesus. He said to them, how foolish you are and how slow to believe all the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. As they approached the village to which they were going, Jesus continued on as if he were going farther. But they urged him strongly, Stay with us, for it is nearly evening. The day is almost over. 
So he went in to stay with them. When he was at the table with them, he took bread, gave thanks, broke it, and began to give it to them. Then their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he disappeared from their sight. They asked each other, were not our hearts burning within us while he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us? They got up and returned at once to Jerusalem. There they found the eleven and those with them assembled together and saying, It is true, the Lord has risen and he has appeared to Simon. Then the two, then the two told what had happened on the way and how Jesus was recognized by them when he broke the bread. Apparently, it's possible to walk and talk to God all day and be totally unaware. So over the past few weeks, I've invited you guys to join Jen and I in, in a prayer rhythm, right? These, this simple three times a day rhythm that we started practicing last June, right? We have in the morning, we just pray the Lord's Prayer at midday, pray for the lost. We talked about that last week. And then in the evening, pray gratitude. So Jen led us through a morning of praying through the Lord's Prayer two weeks ago. Last week, I talked about prayer for the lost at midday. And you guys, today we're, 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 we're to the evening part of this. And I am, I'm like, someone asked me this morning on the way in, Kim Halverson, they said, hey, are you on fire today? I'm like, yes, I am. I, I'm actually so excited about what we're going to talk about today that I wore the same material as what you're sitting on in your chairs. <laughs> so that's, that's pretty good. We're going to talk about prayer, pray, praying gratitude in the evening. And you guys, this is, this is such a basic thing. And what I've discovered in doing this and making this a regular practice is this is such a gift. This evening practice of praying gratitude teaches us to see. There's, there's an inner condition that, that blinds us to blessings all around us. And as human beings, we all suffer from it from time to time. In our culture, we typically refer to it as entitlement. This sense that the world owes me, or the sense that, that God owes me. And when I see the world that way, I'm blinded. I can't see what's being given to me as a gift. Sean Aker is, is a leading researcher from Harvard on the study of happiness. And he tells about an experience he had cross-culturally. He'd been studying and teaching on happiness at Harvard, and he was invited to present uh, present in Soweto, South, South Africa. So he went to a school there, and it was shockingly impoverished. And it occurred to him that telling these students about, his, telling these students about Harvard, so like describing the elite Harvard students and, and their lives, might not really connect all that well with these students in Soweto, South Africa. So he decided that he, he, would, he would do something to bond with them over something that's, that's universal, the dislike that all students everywhere have of homework, <laughs> schoolwork, okay? So he started his presentation to them with this rhetorical question. He said, how many of you like to do homework? And to his shock, 95% of the hands in the room shot up in the air. They're like, yeah, 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 yeah. Isn't it cool that we get to do that? And he realized that Harvard students, the elite, the best of the best, the brightest of a generation, the cream of the crop, 
those given every advantage and opportunity, he realized what they experience as a stressor and a burden to bear. Oh, poor me. I have to write these papers. I have to read these books and take these tests. I'm living in all this demand and pressure and burden. These other students who have infinitely less, who don't have enough food most of the time, don't know if they're actually going to be able to grow up or not, they experience the opportunity to learn as an incredible gift. I get to read. I get to discover. I get to find out. I get to learn. I get to write papers. I get to be tested all, on all this stuff to make sure that I've actually learned. I'll have doors open to me that my mom and my dad never dreamed of. Oh, man, like, who, who likes homework? Me, 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 me. I'm so thankful for it. Grateful people see gifts where others don't. Grateful people see the world differently. But it's, it's easy to sort of devolve into a relationship with God that's marked by entitlement. God, you owe me. You owe me a full, fulfilled life. And then what happens is we define what a full, fulfilled life looks like. And it usually looks like me getting pretty much everything I want. God, you owe me. Entitled people tend to be disappointed people, and that disappointment often manifests itself in subtle anger. Like, I thought if I followed Jesus, he'd give me a happy marriage. I thought if I followed Jesus, then my dreams for his kingdom would come to pass. I thought if I followed Jesus, I'd be sexually fulfilled. I thought if I followed Jesus, my addictions and destructive habits would all go away easily. I thought if I followed Jesus, I'd get a community that knows and supports me and helps me to flourish. I thought if I followed Jesus, and you just fill in the blank with whatever it is that you expected would happen. Jesus takes direct aim at this heart posture because it keeps us from God. Um, I'm going to read you a, a lesser-known parable of Jesus. So check this one out. This one might be foreign to some of you. Jesus says, Suppose one of you has a servant plowing or looking after the sheep. Will he say to the servant when he comes in from the field, Come along now and sit down to eat. Won't he rather say, Prepare my supper. Get yourself ready to wait on me while I eat and drink. After that, you may eat and drink. Will he thank the servant because he did everything he was told to do? So you also, when you have done everything you were told to do, should say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done our duty. Let's be honest. We don't like this little story, do we? There's a reason that this isn't anybody's favorite parable of Jesus. In fact, it's kind of like, wait, is this the same Jesus who said that he came to serve us? Who said that the last will be first and the least will be the greatest and all of that? Because here at, at first read, it feels like he's saying, I'm the master and you're the servant. Your place is to serve me. Get my food and my drink, and when you're done serving me, then you can eat. But don't think I'm going to thank you for any of it. We don't like that. We don't like this. But what Jesus is actually doing is not that at all. 
What Jesus is doing is drawing a distinction between what we receive as a right and what we receive as a gift. This isn't what the master is like. The master is himself a humble servant. In fact, in so many other places, Jesus paints an opposite picture. Like earlier in Luke, Jesus says, It will be good for those servants whose master finds them watching when he comes. Truly, I tell you, he will dress himself to serve will have them recline at the table and will come and wait on them. That's how Jesus lived. It's how Jesus died. Jesus came humbly with a level of grace beyond anyone's wildest imagination. His kindness and compassion and generosity were unthinkable, and he revealed a father who de- delights in showering us with good gifts. But here's where his humility uh, toward us can go wrong. It goes wrong the moment we, d- we think we deserve it. The moment that we feel we're entitled to it. The point that Jesus is making is this. In God's kingdom, every one of you is offered a seat at the Father's table. But if you act like spoiled children, you can't enjoy the Father. Entitlement kills our ability to discern God's goodness to us and feel his love. Entitled, entitled people feel bitter with God and really, really alone. Um, question, does, does anybody know the most frequent command in the Bible? S- some of you do, and, and you might be right, and you're like, but I don't want to be like teacher's pet. <laughs> Others of you are like, I, I don't know. So, so here it is. Um, <laughs> most frequent command in the Bible, most frequent command, do not fear. Fear not. Don't be afraid. And it's interesting, you guys, we're instructed to not fear more than we're instructed to pray or to give or even to love. Apparently, fear is like a major human problem. Fear not. Do not fear. And then the second most frequent command is this. Remember. So do not fear and remember. And it's interesting because the two are really closely connected. Fear comes most when I lose sight of God's presence in my life. So I need to remember what God has already done because as I do, the fear that's holding me loses its grip on my life and my distorted vision gets recalibrated so that I can see again. There's the old saying, right? Hindsight is what? 2020. So in other words, when we look backward, we see clearly. Sometimes it's hard to see God's activity in the present, but when I look backward, I often see all kinds of stuff that I missed in the moment. And that's why in the prayer rhythm, the suggestion is that gratitude come in the evening because gratitude is a way of recognizing the gifts the giver has sprinkled all throughout the slog and the blur of my ordinary day. Regular gratitude in the evening is a way of seeing an average day, which often comes through a haze of emotions and a fog of experiences, as actually being covered in the presence of God. Jen and I have been doing this this prayer rhythm thing like three times a day for, for six months now, and the evening part of it, you guys, is a way bigger deal than I ever thought it would be. Like, like any new practice, it's like, it's been clunky, right? It's felt kind of unnatural. And I've, I've missed a few along the way for sure, just like forgotten to do it. And then, so what happens is I go, shoot. And then I get back to it the next day. 
But I, I'm actually really committed to this practice in my life. And I found that the evening part of it um, is really a, a game changer. Like it's reframing how, how I'm seeing so much of my life. And here's why. The regular practice of gratitude enables us to identify gifts and connect them to the giver. God implores us, do not be afraid. And then what strategy does he give us to do it? Remember. Look back and remember what God has already done. You ever noticed how often God commanded Israel to feast? You go through the Old Testament, you're like, boy, that's another feast. He commands them to feast to commemorate all these different key moments in his experience with them through a feast. How cool is God? It could have been some torturous fast. <laughs> but you think, you think about it. Like, there's Passover, there's Rosh Hashanah, there's Purim, there's Pentecost, there's Yom Kippur, and the list goes on and on and on. In fact, if you add up all the feast days for the nation of Israel in the Old Testament, they spend about one-third of every year feasting and celebrating. God rules. <laughs> but, but the distinguishing factor between those celebrations and, like, your upcoming um, office Christmas party <laughs> is the practice of gratitude. It was always connected to gratitude. Through song and drink and food and community, they were implored to connect their gifts to the giver. I mean, how cool is it that God set it up that way? Like through music and prayer and wine and even the order of the courses of food that were coming out, the feast and the celebration were more than just a good time. They were a way of, of helping the people remember and be able to say to God, thank you, thank you, thank you. When God brought Israel out of Egyptian slavery and into the promised land, he created a new society, ordered under a different king, and then said, celebrate often and celebrate hard. But celebration devoid of gratitude devolves into like gluttony and indulgence. And the Jewish people knew that. So they worked in all kinds of deliberate traditions, ways of making sure that these celebrations actually honored God in gratitude. So, for instance, during the, the Passover, they, they often sang a song entitled, entitled Dainu. So it's a Hebrew phrase meaning it would have been enough, or it can also be translated, thank you God for overdoing it. And a dainu, a dainu like forms a great backdrop for an evening prayer of gratitude. Like Dainu prayer sounds, sounds like this. God, lunch today would have been enough. The fact that I had lunch. But you gave me the resources to not only have something to eat, but to choose something that I would like out of a series of options. Thank you, God, for overdoing it. And God, to have a lunch of my choice would have been enough, but you created like a world of culture and flavor and spice so that food is more than fuel for living. Like, it's delightful. Thank you, God, for overdoing it. And God, a delicious lunch of, of my choice today would have been enough. But you gave me a coworker to sit across from and to be heard by and to listen to. Thank you, God, for overdoing it. The Dainu prayer is, is, is like, is, is this way to express gratitude. And it's such like a small, manageable thing that really any of us can do. But however we go about expressing gratitude, however we do it, whenever we do it, it's critical, you guys, it's critical that we do it. Because without it, we risk missing God's presence and activity. 
Um, Tyler Staten explains it this way. He says, when, when we stop or never start recognizing God in the course of our ordinary lives, we're in danger of ceasing to recognize God altogether. This is, of course, the condition of the Pharisees who found it quite natural to recognize God in words in a sacred scroll, scroll or in formal gatherings in the temple, but who could not recognize God, God as he sat at their own dinner table with his feet being washed by the hair of a sex worker or at Levi's house as he celebrated new life among the tax collectors, or in another person's house as the roof was ripped off so some people could get, could get their friend to God. Because at the root of entitlement is the death of wonder. Wonder died in the priest's eyes, and therefore when God showed up in their midst, their eyes narrowed in jealousy and suspicion instead of widening in wonder. I mean, have, you, have you, ever, you ever read the New Testament and you're just like reading through the Gospels and you're like, how in the world did the Pharisees miss Jesus? I mean, these were the God guys. They cared about God a lot. And he was like healing people in their midst. And he was, his teaching was just like life itself. And he welcomed the broken and, and he gave hope to the hopeless. And new life ensued in his wake everywhere he went. And somehow the Pharisees who devoted their lives to God missed it. How? Well, part of it is they expected God to move a certain way. They expected the Messiah to look a certain way. They expected certain things to happen, and they didn't. They had a long list of expectations for events surrounding the Messiah, and because they had predetermined exactly how God would act, when his actions were outside of their box, they missed them. And you guys, I think that we're all susceptible to do this. I mean, let me ask you, have you ever thought God would work in your life in a particular way and he didn't? Like, if you're new to following Jesus, let me discourage you. <laughs> yeah, so I'm here to be real. If you're new to Jesus, um, let me tell you, if you walk with God for any length of time, this will happen to you. Like you, you see something good, right? You see something that you're sure God would want to do. It's in line with his character. And you're so sure that he's going to do it. At times you're like, I can feel it. I can, and then he doesn't. Here's the danger. We can get so fixated on that thing that we become blind to everything else he's actually doing all around us. I mean, the Pharisees expected the Messiah to come in and just clean house in Israel. They expected him to create holiness in Israel by expelling all the unholy, by praising the devout people like them and criticizing the sinners. They expected the Messiah to come as a fiery prophet speaking words of condemnation over the unclean and the sinners. Instead, Jesus criticized the hard hearts of the self-righteous religious leaders and he touched the tender hearts of the poor and the broken and the hurting. Like he ate meals with corrupt tax collectors and sex workers. So they had a vision for God to act a certain way, and their vision blinded them. So when God did something better, they couldn't see it. They witnessed the most definitive act of God in human history, and they were completely blind to what was happening. And you guys, it isn't just the Pharisees. Like, sincere disciples are also susceptible to this. It's us, right? It's you, it's me. 
When our expectations go unmet, we easily miss God's other activity in our midst. So back to Luke 24. For the two disciples walking on the road to Emmaus, the wonder has died. Right? It has been replaced with disappointment and hopelessness and fear. In fact, they're walking away from Jerusalem probably to start over. Jesus, Jesus comes and he joins them on their walk, right? Talking to them, explaining things. And yet it does little. They're, they're unable to recognize him. At the end of the walk, there's this, this, this strange little throwaway line that we can kind of miss. But it says, as they approached the village to which they were going, Jesus continued on as if he were going farther. That's kind of, I mean, I think that's kind of interesting. Is, is that just like a charade? Or was God actually content to walk beside these two disciples all day and then just keep going without them ever realizing who it was they'd been talking to? Like, is Jesus really willing to, to let them miss him altogether? Well, God has always seemed willing to go tragically unnoticed. You remember that time that Jesus walked on water? You guys remember that? Shortly before dawn, he went out to them walking on the lake. He was about to pass by them. Or the famous scene where he restored Peter on the beach. Early in the morning, Jesus stood on the shore, but the disciples did not realize that it was Jesus. In fact, John opens his, his gospel account of the person and the life of Jesus with this. He says, he was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. Apparently, God is, is very willing to go unnoticed. In fact, most people miss God most of the time. In reference to Moses' encounter with God, like at the burning bush, Elizabeth Barrett Browning writes, The earth is ablaze with the fire of God, but only those who see it take their shoes off. I want to be someone, I want to become someone who sees. I, I want to become somebody who takes his shoes off. So the, the two disciples get to town, and, and Jesus is about to keep walking. It says, but they urged him strongly, stay with us, for it's nearly evening. The day's almost over. So he went in to stay with them. And then finally, when he was at the table with them, he took bread, gave thanks, broke it, and began to give it to them. Then their eyes were opened. And they recognized him. So there they are with Jesus at the table, engaging in evening prayers of gratitude. And suddenly they become aware of what they had missed all day. Suddenly the, the path they walked all day was lit up with God's presence. But without that moment at the table, they would have never seen it. They're brought alive in wonder and they retrace all their steps and they are so set on fire by God's activity all around them that they immediately, like right now, they just head, head back to Jerusalem. And they re-engage with the other disciples, and they find that those guys have some stories too. So here's, here's what I'm saying about praying gratitude in the evening. It allows us to go back through each day with different perspective. And you guys, I, I, have, been, I have been utterly amazed at what God has enabled me to see as I've started doing this. Like, evening gratitude enables me to recognize God in the ordinary grind of my everyday life. And here's what I'm discovering. As I do this more and more, that sense of God's activity and that feeling of gratitude, it's coming to me not just 
in hindsight at the end of the day. The more I do this, I'm beginning to feel it more and more like in the present moment. This evening practice is actually changing my, my daytime experience. And I'll, I'll tell you guys something. To be in, in a moment and feel God in it with me, like to awaken to his presence and his activity in real time, you guys, this is the kind of relationship with God that I have, I have longed for. And it's required some simple structure, but that structure is really helping me. So again, as, as Jen and I are getting more at home in our daily prayer rhythm, I'm, I'm inviting you guys to join us because it's been a big deal for us. Now, if you have something else, great, great. I mean, this is, should not be a legalistic thing. This is, should not be a big burden for you. If you have something else, great. If you don't want to do it, great. God won't love you any less. He won't. But I'm inviting you to think about uh, praying the Lord's Prayer in the morning, praying for the lost midday, and especially in the evening, praying gratitude. And how do, how do you go about, like, practically speaking, how do you go about this whole evening portion of this? Well, I just say pick a time. Maybe a time that you already have a routine built into your day and then repurpose it. Like maybe take advantage of your commute home. Instead of popping in your earbuds or scrolling social media on the bus or listening to the radio in the car, just pray gratitude. Or maybe when your head hits the pillow at night or at dinner, just replay the events of the day and thank God for everything you can think of to thank him for. However it works, just pick a time and then walk back through the day with God, and everywhere you can, say, Dainu. You know, God, it would have been enough, but thank you for overdoing it. Now, I want to say something else. This, this daily rhythm thing has been super hard for me to establish. Um, I've, you know, I've been at this since June, and it has been so clunky and awkward. The important part for me has been the consistency of it. Um, and I've discovered this is how almost all new practices and rhythms usually work for me. They're terrible at first. About nine years ago, uh, some of you know, I, I, tried, I tried a regular practice of like reading scripture and, and, and journaling on it called soaping. And I didn't, so I didn't have a regular practice for reading scripture and journaling, so I joined this online group where it was like required and you guys, when I started soaping, I, I'm going to tell you something. I hated it. I hated it. Like, I, I dreaded it. It, it. it felt so unnatural. I felt so bad at it. And I had thoughts like, you know, I'm just not a journaler. I, I connect with God in other ways, better ways. Um, you know, this isn't, this isn't for me. I, I hate this. I'm not good at it. It's so unnatural. But I was in this discipleship group with other pastors online, and it was required. So I, I, I pressed on and pressed on and pressed on, and, and after time, it started to feel a lot more natural. And in time, it sort of became a part of me. And for the last several years, this has be, that, that practice has become foundational. In fact, you guys, in leading the church through COVID, that practice carried me. It has become a vital practice for reading scripture in a personal way. So not to prep sermons, but to hear from God like just for me. And his voice has become so indispensable. But this past year, I realized I, I need more interaction with God in prayer. 
I pray, but it's inconsistent. Like it's too sporadic, too shallow. I want more. So I, I did a bunch of research and came across this prayer rhythm. And Jen and I have like given ourselves to it. It's been awkward. Um, some days I miss parts of it. But I'm getting a lot more consistent, and, and it's getting better, and it's getting deeper and easier and more natural. And most of all, you guys, here's what's happening. God is meeting me in it. One of the spiritual giants of the last century is a guy named Frank Laubach. And he served as a missionary in like a remote part of the Philippines um, where he, be- he became consumed with the crisis of illiteracy. So he started a, a program called Each One Teach One, which has enabled more than 60 million people to learn to read. So God has used his life in amazing ways. But in isolation, mostly in isolation, in the Philippines, Laubach learned to pray. Like in an attempt to become more aware of God's presence, he devoted himself to prayer in a rhythmic way. And he went on to write this. He said, the results of this this prayer rhythm begin to show clearly in a month. They grow rich after six months, and glorious after 10 years. Now, what does Frank Laubach mean by glorious? Well, I've been at this for six months, and I will tell you, it is growing richer for sure. What might happen after 10 years or more? I'll tell you the truth. I'm excited to find out. But I want to share a story of what I expect it might look like. And I came across this story years ago in a book written by John Ortberg. Um, It comes from his book, The Life You've Always Wanted. It's a story of a woman thoroughly transformed by Jesus, a woman of deep prayer and just inconceivable gratitude. And it's not John Ortberg's story, actually. It's the story of his friend, Tom Schmidt. So when Tom was in college, he volunteered to care for people in a nursing home. And he encountered a woman there named Mabel. And she was unlike anybody he had ever met, and he never forgot her. So here's what happened. Here's what Tom Schmidt writes. The state-run convalescent hospital is not a pleasant place. It is a large, understaffed, and overfilled, and it is large, understaffed, and overfilled with senile and helpless and lonely people who are waiting to die. On the brightest of days, it seems dark inside, and and it smells of sickness and stale urine. I went there once or twice a week for four years, but never wanted to go there and always left with a sense of relief. It's not the kind of place place one gets used to. On this particular day, I was walking in a hallway that I had not visited before, looking in vain for a few who were alive enough to receive a flower and a few words of encouragement. This hallway seemed to contain some of the worst cases, strapped onto carts or into wheelchairs and looking completely helpless. As I neared the end of this hallway, I saw an old woman strapped in a wheelchair. Her face was an absolute horror. The empty stare and white pupils of her eyes told me that she was blind. The large hearing aid over one ear told me she was almost deaf. One side of her face was being eaten by cancer. There was a discolored and running sore covering part of one cheek, and it had pushed her nose to one side, dropped one eye, and distorted her jaw so that what should have been the corner of her mouth was the bottom of her mouth. As a consequence, she drooled constantly. I was told later that when new nurses arrived, the supervisor would send them to feed this woman, thinking that if they could stand this sight, they could stand anything in the building. I also learned later that this woman was 89 years old and that she had been here bedridden 
blind, nearly deaf, and alone for 25 years. Her name was Mabel. I don't know why I spoke to her. She looked less likely to respond than most of the people I saw in that hallway. But I put a flower in her hand and said, here is a flower for you. Happy Mother's Day. She held the flower up to her face and tried to smell it, and then she spoke. And much to my surprise, her words, although somewhat garbled because of her deformity, were obviously produced by a clear mind. She said, thank you. It's lovely. But can I give it to someone else? I can't see it, you know. I'm blind. I said, of course. And I pushed her in her chair back down the hallway to a place where I thought I could find some alert patients. I found one, and I stopped the chair. Mabel held out the flower and said, here, this is from Jesus. That was when it began to dawn on me that this was no ordinary human being. Later, I wheeled her back to her room and learned more about her history. She had grown up in a small farm that she managed with only her mother until her mother died. Then she ran the farm alone until 1950 when her blindness and sickness sent her to the convalescent hospital. For 25 years, she got weaker and sicker with constant headaches, backaches, and stomach aches, and then the cancer came too. Her three roommates were all human vegetables who screamed occasionally but never talked. They often soiled their bedclothes, and because the hospital was understaffed, especially on Sundays when I usually visited, the stench was often overpowering. Mabel and I became friends over the next few weeks, and I went to see her once or twice a week for the next three years. Her first words to me were usually an offer of hard candy from a tissue box near her bed. Some days I would read to her from the Bible, and, I, and often when I would pause, she would continue reciting the passage from memory, word for word. On other days, I would take a book of hymns and sing with her, and she would know all the words of the old songs. For Mabel, these were not merely exercises in memory. She would often stop in mid-hymn and make a brief comment about lyrics she considered particularly relevant to her own situation. I never, never heard her speak of loneliness or pain except in the stress she placed on certain lines in certain hymns. It was not many weeks before I turned from a sense that I was being helpful to a sense of wonder. And I would go to her with a pen and paper and write down the things she would say. During one hectic week of final exams, I was frustrated because my mind seemed to be pulled in 10 directions at once with all of the things I had to think about. The question occurred to me, what does Mabel have to think about hour after hour, day after day, week after week, not even able to know if it's day or night? So I went in and asked, Mabel, what do you think about when you lay here? And she said, I think about my Jesus. I sat there for a moment and thought about the difficulty for me of thinking about Jesus for even five minutes. And I asked, well, what do you think about Jesus? She replied slowly and deliberately as I wrote, I think about how good he's been to me. He's been awfully good in my life, you know. I'm one of those kind who's mostly satisfied. Lots of folks wouldn't care much for what I think. Lots of folks would think I'm kind of old-fashioned, but I don't care. I'd rather have Jesus. He is all the world to me. And then Mabel began to sing an old hymn. Jesus is all the world to me. My life, my joy, my all. He is my strength from day to day. Without him, I would fall. 
When I am sad, to him I go. No other one can cheer me so. When I am sad, he makes me glad. He is my friend. And he writes, this is not fiction. Incredible as it may seem, a human being really lived like this. I know, I knew her. How could she do it? Seconds ticked and minutes crawled and so did days and weeks and months and years of pain without human company and without any explanation of why it was all happening and she lay there and sang hymns. How could she do it? The answer, I think, is that Mabel had something you and I don't have much of. She had power. Lying there in that bed, unable to move, unable to see, unable to hear, unable to talk to anyone, she had incredible power. And John Orberg goes on to comment. He says, for anyone who really saw Mabel, who was willing to turn aside, a hospital bed became a burning bush, a place where this ordinary and pain-filled world was visited by the presence of God. When others saw the life in that hospital bed, they wanted to take off their shoes. They were standing on holy ground. Do you believe such a life is possible for an ordinary human being? Do you believe it's possible for you? This is promised in the gospel, the good news proclaimed by Jesus. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. The good news as Jesus preached it is that now it is possible for ordinary human men and women to live in the presence and under the power of God. You guys, I want to go deeper into that. Do you? Father in heaven. The earth is, is filled with your presence. My life is filled with your presence. Our lives are filled with your presence. Help us to see. Help us to encounter you. God, help us to see the huckleberries and to experience everything that you have for us in it all. 